Well, if you've got your Bibles, we're continuing uh, in the book of Psalms. So we've been working, as you know, since the beginning of our, uh, our at-home video services. We started working through the Psalms a couple of months ago. And about halfway through that, we turned our attention to the Psalms of Ascent. So those are Psalms 120 through Psalm 134. And today we find ourselves in Psalm 125. Um, one of the things I've been enjoying about doing the Psalms over the last few weeks is the way that you can't exactly predict what topics they're going to cover as you turn to the next psalm. Uh, in some ways, every week the psalm is a little bit of a surprise in that it takes you to a topic maybe you hadn't predicted. It's one way of saying that uh, thousands of years ago, an editor would have taken all of these psalms that were circulating around Israel and have sat down and collected them and put them in an order and arranged them in what we have today as, as the book of Psalms, the Psalter. And those choices that that person made when they were putting these psalms together, particularly ones in a series like this, Psalm 120 through 134, um, it had some purpose or intent behind it that we begin to discover as we work through them. And one of the things that immediately strikes you about the psalms is they're not not set up in a sort of step-by-step order. These psalms don't work by once you understand Psalm 1 and you really master it, then you're ready to go to Psalm 2. And once you master Psalm 2, you move to Psalm 3. And they're progressing you step-by-step towards some big goal at the end where you could say that I'm a consummate professional because I've worked my way step by step through the Psalms. The Psalms don't work that way. Instead, at times, they can feel a little bit random when you come to them. Each one is sort of a new topic unto itself. But what always surprises me about the Psalms is for that randomness, the amount of relevance they have to them. That when you work through these psalms, you may not have said, you know what I need today is Psalm 125. But as you force yourself to move through those psalms, you suddenly find Psalm 125 was exactly what you needed to hear and completely relevant to your moment. You begin to realize that these psalms know things about you, know things that you need sometimes before you realize that you need them. Um, eventually, even if you read a psalm like Psalm 125 or another and say, yeah, it's not exactly where I am. Last week, we looked at this psalm of being trapped in a, in a cage and realizing it was, you were freed. Maybe you said, you know, things are going good. I don't exactly feel like I'm caught in a trap right now. The truth is, one day you will. And this exposure to these psalms gives you the language and the understanding for that moment when it hits. And you suddenly say to yourself, ah, Psalm 124. So I want to look at Psalm 125 today. Again, the Psalms of Ascent are relatively short, just five verses. So we'll read it, uh, Psalm 125, verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. From this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Psalm 125 has a pretty simple image. Most of these psalms are based around the kinds of analogies we've been looking at. These poetic images the author of the psalm is drawing. And this week, they're pretty straightforward. Um, Five of these images. The first one is this. Trusting in God is like Mount Zion. We'll have to figure out what that means. Number two, God surrounds his people like the mountains surrounded Jerusalem. We've got a little bit of geography to do, so uh, if you're not familiar with where Jerusalem is or what it's talking about, these mountains surrounding, we'll deal with that. Then you get this image, the scepter of the wicked, followed by this final prayer, God do good, is the prayer, verse 4 and 5. So let's start with this image of Jerusalem. 
Uh, The first comparison compares what it means to trust in God with being Mount Zion, which cannot be moved and is forever settled. Mount Zion is, of course, a reference to Jerusalem. This is the mountain that Jerusalem, the city itself, was founded and built upon. And each time, if you go through Israel's history and on even into history today, each time Jerusalem was captured or conquered, inevitably it would be rebuilt. And one way or another, the Jews would return to the city to take up their worship to begin again. A Jew looked at the city of Jerusalem as the center of their faith, a center of their worship. And it was at this city that God's presence was central It was also in this city, the city of David, Jerusalem, where God had promised David that a descendant of his would rule upon that throne for all eternity. So it's not hard to imagine that for a practicing Jew, the city of Jerusalem was a kind of eternal city, a city with eternal promises, a city with a hope and a future founded in God. It's interesting how Israel was reminded, remained settling in Jerusalem over and over again all these years. I mean, if you go to Jerusalem today, as you probably know, there are still practicing Jews in Jerusalem these thousands of years later, still settling there, still worshiping God there. So the psalmist makes this remarkable claim. If you trust in God, you are as secure as the city of Jerusalem, with all of its eternal hopes and all of the protection and defense of God. As difficult as it would be to pick up the mountain Jerusalem is built on and move it somewhere, as difficult as it has been to remove all of the Jews from Jerusalem, so it is with you when you put your trust and confidence and faith in God. You're not going anywhere, neither is Jerusalem. Thousands of years, Jerusalem still sits, and those who trust in God have the same kind of solid assurance. The second image says that if you trust in the Lord, you are surrounded like the mountains surround Jerusalem. So you have to get a little mental picture of what's happening here. Jerusalem, as we've often talked about, sits on a mountain, Mount Zion. People will talk about going up to Jerusalem, whether you're going from the south to the north or the north to the south. It's not a reference to uh, compass direction. It's a reference to the topography. You're going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem sits on a mountain. But Jerusalem is actually sort of sitting in a dish, if you will, of surrounding mountains. So what you get is you get seven mountains, uh, large hills, if you want to think of them that way. They're not snow-capped, but they're called mountains. If you had to walk up them uh, one way and then back the next, you would call them mountains. And as you ascend these seven mountains, within the bowl of those seven mountains sets Mount Zion that Israel is on. So if you've ever been to Israel, I got a chance to see it last time I was there. One of the places you will often go as a tourist is there's a sort of parking area with a, a, uh, one of these viewpoints, you know, you'll often see around here too, where you can pull off and walk down. There's one that's about halfway up the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives, you actually look down into Jerusalem and into the ravines, the valleys that lead up to Jerusalem. So from the Mount of Olives, when you stand in this viewing area, you actually can look down into the city of Jerusalem and down into the temple complex itself. But to get there, you would have to descend below it and then back up this Mount of Zion over like the Kidron Valley in this case. So what the psalmist is is recognizing is the way Jerusalem sits in this ring of mountains on a mountain. What that meant in the ancient world was this was a very defensible position to build a city. You were protected by mountains on all sides and protected by being on a mountain itself. Uh, What it meant is no one could sneak up on Jerusalem. When you're in Jerusalem, you see all of the mountaintops around you and any army coming over was pretty obvious and visible from the city. It also meant that anybody who was trying to conquer the city would be forced to track over those mountains, down through the valley, and then back up to the walls of Jerusalem. 
It made it difficult to move siege equipment. It made it difficult to find a place to settle an army. It oftentimes left your army tired and exhausted from the trek before you even began the battle. It's one of the reasons that Jerusalem was such a defensive stronghold for Israel's capital. Now, if you know a little bit from the Bible, we did this uh, probably years ago when we were in the book of uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, David conquered Jerusalem. It was not a city he built. He conquered it from the Jebusites. And that city was so well defended at the time that whenever David was trying to conquer it, the Jebusites actually took the blind and lame citizens from the city and put them on the walls of the city to mock David, saying, our defenses are so strong, the blind and the lame could defend this city from you getting in here. David only was able to conquer Jerusalem because they found a a water duct that carried water into the city, and his men were able to sneak through the water duct and open the gates so that David's army could conquer the city. The defenses were something that really were, even for David, insurmountable. The confidence that that defensive position gave Jerusalem is what's at the heart of this image of the song. This is what Jerusalem was, an eternal city that had these natural defenses protecting it. And so the psalmist says, when you trust in God, you have both the same assurances as Jerusalem and you are surrounded by God's presence in the same way that those mountains surround Jerusalem. Now, that image takes on even bigger meaning when you remember that we're doing the Psalms of Ascent, right? These Psalms were oftentimes used by Jews as they traveled to Jerusalem for religious holidays. They would recite Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 as part of their pilgrimage. Each day, they might take a Psalm and go through it. Um, When I was in Israel, Dr. Jim Bradford led that trip. Every day on the bus, as we would head to the next site, he would read one of the Psalms of Ascent, kind of mimicking this practice of as you're headed towards Jerusalem. So what does this psalm mean for that person who is traveling, the pilgrim, who's not in that walled city, but out in the wilderness, Uh, the person who's literally climbing those mountains to get to Jerusalem? We've talked about several times through these psalms the risk, the constant risk that one of these traveling pilgrims would have been under. We've talked about the risk of marauders, thieves and robbers, flash floods in these ravines, the wild animals, the risk of rock slides, the heat of the sun, the possibility of injury with no help, no support. You can imagine a pilgrim who's walking through all of these risks and dangers, setting through Psalm 125 their mind on the safety and the security and the protection of that great walled city of Jerusalem. That experience, the protection of Jerusalem, was so much of what they didn't have when they were in the midst of the journey. What I found really interesting about Psalm 125 this week is that Psalm 125 doesn't compare your faith to the pilgrim on a journey. It doesn't say to you, you're on your own unique spiritual path, a pilgrim of faith. Uh, Obviously, Psalms before it say that God protects you on that path. But what Psalm 125 does is says, your experience, even in the midst of risk, is characterized by that final destination of Jerusalem. The image of you as a believer is not a person on a risky road trying to find protection and help. The image of you of a believer, even in the midst of risk, is one who has the security and the confidence and the peace and the protection of Jerusalem. I think that's an important part of Psalm 125, because much of the Christian life, our own pilgrimage, if you will, can feel at times like we're constantly at risk, constantly barely making it through ducking our head, trying to stay out of trouble, looking around every corner. But Psalm 125 says that even as you travel through those risks, 
Set your eyes on Jerusalem, because if you believe in the Lord, he surrounds you like the mountains surround Jerusalem. But Psalm 125 is not just about God's protection and defense. Um, To be a little bit honest with you this week, when I read Psalm 125, uh, my first read through, I thought, man, this sounds a lot like all the other Psalms we've been doing. Like, I'm just going to tell them again that God protects them. God protects you, which right now is actually a reassuring thing, but it's kind of nice to have a little bit of a different angle. So every week's not the exact same sermon. Uh, So I started spending more time with Psalm 125, and it struck me that this is not primarily a psalm about how God encircles us and protects us and keeps us safe. That's the starting point of the psalm. But verse 3 says that a scepter of wickedness will not remain over God's people, God's land, for long. Because if it did, the righteous would be tempted to do evil. That's a really interesting line. What's that all about? The psalmist says that when wickedness reigns, when our experience is the oppression of wickedness all the time, there's a temptation for even the righteous to conclude that that's just how the world works. That's how things get done. What else do you have to do but to participate in the broken system? If righteousness rules and righteousness works and righteousness pays off, then that makes sense. But if wickedness rules and wickedness reigns and wickedness pays off, And what are you left to do in this world but to join in? And that's what the psalmist is saying. If the wickedness rules over the land for long, then even the righteous will come to the temptation, the conclusion, we might as well do what everyone else is doing. That seems to be the way things get done in this world. The psalmist declares that God will not let that happen. God will show his people enough of his grace so that they can understand that they live, even in this land where wickedness exists, that they live not by pragmatic power, control, the scepter. They live by grace. Psalm 125 says, I know what it is to live in a world that seems to be dominated by the power of wickedness. But if you pay close enough attention, there's enough grace to realize that you don't have to live that way, to be tempted by it. So it makes sense, the final prayer, verse 4 and 5, so God, do good to those who do good. Do what you said you would do. When the world looks like it's oppression and wickedness and temptation, God, do good so that we recognize that we can be good, live in the good, without being tempted to wrong. What I think Psalm 125 is, is a reminder to us that all of the protection and security that God gives us doesn't exist so that we can sort of lay back in our hammocks on Sunday afternoons and say, man, it's nice to be protected by God and not have to worry like everyone else. There's a temptation that we read the Psalms this way. I'm secure, I'm safe, God's got my back, I can relax. Psalm 125 instead says, because we have this protection, this security, we can continue to do good. To not be tempted by the ways of this world, but to live out that good, to live out that grace in ways without God's protection would not be possible. Maybe that seems like a strange conclusion for you, but I think you know this about yourself as well. Um, Some of us got stimulus checks in the mail, and I was uh, joking with several people. I know both the responsible thing to do with my stimulus check, and I know the thing I would actually like to do with my stimulus check, right? Uh, I could buy a boat, a very cheap boat, but still a boat, or I could 
pay off a car loan, which is probably the thing that I should be doing with that money. Neither of which is what the economists want. They wanted me to like spend it at McDonald's and Walmart. And, but you know, whenever you receive a great gift, there's the responsible thing you can do with it. There's the irresponsible thing you can do with it. Um, Ashley will also, to give you another analogy, will testify. Uh, my dad and I have a bad habit of making poor decisions when it comes to bad weather. So one time we went bird hunting in South Dakota. You were talking about this this morning. See, this, this will prove my illustration so well. Uh, we knew that there was a blizzard coming in, but we decided no blizzard would stop us from going bird hunting. So we set off to South Dakota, convinced we were tougher than any blizzard, anything Mother Nature could throw against us. At some point along the road, when we could see nothing but out the side window, I could make out the road line to let him know he was still on the road, we realized that this was a really stupid decision that we had made. Turns out we couldn't just drive our way through a blizzard. By God's grace, it turned out okay. We survived. And so then what do we now do? We brag about how we weathered that storm and nothing was going to beat us down. We do the responsible thing. We did the unresponsible thing. And then when it worked out by God's grace, we use it as a mark of our own manhood, our own toughness, our own uh, determination. This kind of thing happens spiritually for us all the time. Having God's protection means that I don't have to worry. I'm safe. We see it play out some great risk, some great anxiety or fear that unfolds in our life. And much to our surprise, it doesn't materialize. God protects us, sometimes in miraculous ways. Which, what do we then do with it? We say, ah, see, it was never any big deal to begin with. Everything works out fine. Thanks to God's goodness, I'm just going to pop some popcorn and turn on Netflix and be thankful that God has been so good to me and go back to doing all the things that I wanted to do. Isn't it nice to have God on your side, a little extra protection to get you through? If you think I'm being a little hard on you about this, Paul worries about this in several of the churches that he pastors in the New Testament. He makes this point to the Galatians. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit reaps eternal life. So let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. What Paul is pointing out to the Galatians is there's a certain kind of temptation that comes with God's protection. That risk is that you use up all that protection for your own good and then get busy doing all the things you wanted to do now that you've been so well protected and secured in it. What Paul says to his church is, don't be deceived. Don't assume that God's protection exists so that you can just go sow the seed that you want and do the things that you want and God will protect you. Instead, he says, God's protection exists so that you can go and sow good seed. Sow to the Spirit, so that you can reap things of the Spirit. And Paul's final conclusion is, use this protection to do good, not to grow weary of doing good, not to feel oppressed by the fact that good doesn't seem to be the way the world is working around us. Because you have God's protection, because you have God's faithfulness, you are the people who can sustain doing good when others grow weary of it. We've spent a lot of time recently talking about God's protection through these psalms. How God protects you physically. Psalm 91 was at the center of so many churches preaching through the coronavirus. God's protection from disease, from famine. How his presence protects us from fear and anxiety. One of the great themes of the Psalms. How God provides for our needs when we find ourselves wanting. How we're strengthened 
in, by relationships and community where it didn't exist. But let me put all of that protection language really clear for you from Psalm 125. If your response to all of that protection is to say thank you and then get right back to the things you wanted to do in your own interests, you've missed the point of God's protection. God's protection is not just to keep you safe so that you can live content and happy in your own living room with your shows and your properly held bank account. God's protection frees you, keeps you safe and secure, so that you can bear the risks of doing good in ways that others couldn't. You can give in sacrificial ways others would be terrified to do because you know that God is your provider. You can sacrifice because you see the way that God sacrificed for you and used that sacrifice for good. And so as you sacrifice, you know that it too will be good. You can hold your tongue and not speak when your pride and everything else in you says that you should because you no longer have the need to be right, to be heard, to protect yourself. You can also speak and tell the truth even when you know that it will be persecution. Because it's not the end of the world. You hold a future, an eternity before you. What you get from God's goodness and his protection is a freedom to do good in such a way that it will not cost you what others fear that doing good will cost. You can lay things down and sacrifice and let go and give in ways that everyone else in this world is terrified to do because doing so might come at a cost. Paul offers it in a similar way to the church at Thessalonica. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Apparently, there were some in this church that after receiving the gospel, God's protection, possibly in that church of even coming in and in their needs, finding financial means from the church itself, they're being aided by other people's sacrifices. They look at it and say, how nice this is. They become idle, they give up working, and they become busybodies, talking, gossiping, sharing their ideas, and stirring up problems. Paul says, get to work. God's grace and protection and providence is not so that you can sit around and gossip and talk and share your opinions. Find something good to do. Find something sacrificial and risky that before you would have been terrified to do, but now that you know you have God's protection, you're brave enough to do. Your freedom is not meant for laziness. It's meant to free you so that you can serve and give and risk things that without God's protection, you never would have been able to. I ended up recognizing that Psalm 125 is a message that I need, that we need, particularly in this moment. But to do so, you're going to have to ask yourself a really hard question. What causes you to grow tired of doing good? It happens to all of us whether it's your bank account, whether it's the investment of your time, whether it's the emotions of a relationship. You find yourself trying to do good, and some night you're just ready to put your head down, go to bed, and be done with the whole thing because it's not working. It's costing too much. It's not getting anywhere. You're growing weary of doing what you know is good, right. 
And so you have to ask yourself the important question, why? If this is good, if it's worth doing, why do I find it so hard and why am I getting so tired of doing it? Is it because I expected some reward for my good? Surely good is the right thing and if I do it, it'll pay off. But I'm not seeing it pay off. Why isn't there some reward in doing good? Maybe it's because you have broken your back to make this sacrifice to do good when no one else seems to be doing the same. Why is it I'm trying so hard? Why is it I'm sacrificing so much? And look at everyone else around me. Nobody else is trying good. If nobody's trying to be good, why am I trying to be so good? Maybe you get tired of doing good because no one seems to be recognizing the good you're doing. (laughs) Is it really good (laughs) if a tree falls in the woods and no one hears it? it? Did it really fall? If I do good and nobody recognizes I did good, is it actually good? Or did I just waste my time and interest? Maybe someone else is getting the recognition for doing far less than you've done. That's the tough one. You need to ask yourself this question and spend the time to figure out the answer to it. Why do I grow tired of doing good? Because the more you understand the answer to that question, it opens up a door to understand something about God's protection and grace that you fail to understand. The point of that question is not so that you can beat yourself up and say, That's why I'm getting tired. Now I've got to go do better. Do good, do good, do good. Don't get tired, don't get tired, don't get tired. As if you could say to yourself running a race, don't get winded, don't get winded. That happens whether I want it to or not. You ask yourself this question because God's protection offers you a way of doing good without growing weary. That if you are growing weary, you failed to understand about his grace and about his security. You haven't understood how his grace frees you from the demand of being paid. How recognizing that Christ's payment of salvation and eternal life is so great as to tip the scales so that any other earthly reward becomes like nothing. You haven't recognized how your good is always an act of gratitude, not justice that demands everyone do the same, not an expectation of being recognized and honored for it, But you do good because of how much God has done for you. And out of gratitude, how could you do anything else? To grow weary of it is to suddenly shift your relationship with God from gratitude to works. You haven't grasped how good Jesus was to you. You haven't grasped the way his world, his kingdom, works by grace. Something of this world, the scepter of wickedness over us, has tempted you to give up doing good, and to approach life and living and possessions and relationships and time like everyone else around you. And so by doing, you've let go of this world of grace and the gospel and taken up something of this world. If you spend time asking that question and really honestly trying to understand the answer to it, not always an easy answer to find, What you get at the end is not just an answer that now helps you do good. You don't just get the good you're trying to do. What you get with that question and the answer is a deeper understanding of what you have received by faith through Christ. What you get is the very thing you were afraid of losing, the thing that motivated you to give up in the first place, security and peace and protection and joy you're going to find that there is some piece of God's kindness and grace that you haven't fully tasted or taken advantage of. And when you do, that thing which made you weary of doing good suddenly becomes a joy, a joy that motivates you and compels you into doing that good, not just out of duty, 
but out of that gratitude that was missing. Psalm 125. We're going to close in prayer and we're going to worship. Um, but I really hope that question, although I'm not answering it for all of you, because it would take, and we could do it if you would like to come up one by one. We could have the conversation about why you grow weary of getting good. But the truth is, it's a work for you to do with the people in your life, with the spirit in prayer, being honest, and I hope actually doing this assignment, not just in a theoretical sermon, but ask yourself the question, why is it that I grow weary of doing good? And what is it about the gospel that I've not fully taken advantage of to free me from that fear, from that risk? What is it about the eternalness of this city, the protection of this city of Jerusalem, that if I had would give me the courage and the braveness to sacrifice more and to do good in ways that no one else afraid to protect their own interest in this world can. Let's close in prayer this morning and we're going to worship. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for what Psalm 125 offers us. God, you did not come just to make demands tell us what we were doing wrong and to tell us to go do better at it. We recognize that being on this Christian path, this pilgrimage, these psalms of ascent, is not just about mastering some technique before we take the next step. But that God, like this psalm begins, our own faith begins with the confidence and the joy and the protection and the security we have in you. So we pause for a moment this morning to remember that that we are here because of your grace, that this prayer we can make because of your sacrifice. God, you gave eternal life to us while we were yet in sin, long before we asked for it, long before we tried to earn it, that you were pouring out grace and protection and favor on our lives. And God, we recognize under this world, its power of wickedness, how easy it is to lose grasp of that think that life works by what we accumulate, by what we, by our determination and willpower, make for ourselves. But we realize this moment from this psalm that the greatest things we have in all eternity are things that were freely given to us, things that you offer to us by your payment, by your death, by your sacrifice. And as we reflect on it this morning, we realize that this is the reason we do good why we hold our tongue, why we speak truth, why we give and sacrifice our time and our money and our emotions, why we bless, why we confess. We do good because of the good you have done for us. All of it an act of gratitude. All of it done with the knowledge that nothing can be lost because you have secured all things. God, I pray that as we grasp that gospel more deeply, you would build in us a courage, an ability to take risks for your goodness and your kingdom, which no one else in this world could understand. That we would be so secure and so confident in what we have in you that nothing in this world could shake that hope and confidence and so everything could be laid down our own life if it was required because in you we have all things God help us with that question as hard as it is to really understand what it is about each of us that causes us to grow weary and that God as we ask that question your spirit would offer us in response more of your gospel that that question would not be one of condemnation, but one of joy and discovering the depths of your gospel to rework our hearts and our lives. 
Do it this morning as we worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.